only a man, and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to believe, though the going gets rough, that you gotta hang tough to make it. History repeats itself, try and you succeed. Never doubt that you're the one, and you can have your dream. You're the best around. Nothing's gonna ever keep you down. You're the best around. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Gaming History 101, the Retro Video Games Podcast. I am one of your hosts. My name is Fred Rojas, and joining me tonight is none other than the superstar from last week, uh, none other than Chip Sella, my co-host from the B-Team Podcast. How's it going, Chip? What's up, Fred? How's it going, man? It is going very good. It's been kind of a hectic Tuesday, but I've got a cold beer in my hand. I'm chilling out, and I'm talking about old games, so I can handle that. Sounds good, man. <laughs> you know, for uh, my uh, two-week hiatus from uh, podcasting, uh, you're the Antichrist. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's even funnier I, because uh, you're not the only one who didn't uh, end up on the B team last week. Yeah, I heard. I actually yeah. called in from from the show, from the concert. Well, and it was funny because it was like I, I, I got held up because, I, you know, I do one of those things where I tell the server, you know, we got to be out of here in an hour. Mm -hmm. So it takes – and we got sandwiches at Hands, and it took her, this girl like 45 minutes, and then she just took them off our bill without so much as a thought when we complained. So I, I hate that just because that means – she never cared from the get, and we were like a pickup table or something, and we were like 10 people, so it was kind of a big deal. But anyway, so I get home, and uh, for the first time ever at 9.20, the B, the B team is wrapping up, or 10.20 Eastern, so I was like, okay. <laughs> so, but. Yeah, anyway. they, they got the show uh, in under, it was just over two hours last week, I believe. Yeah, I think it went on longer once I decided not to join in, but they were already on news. There was no point in me mm -hmm. jumping in with some shit dribbling. But this is not about that. Uh, this is, yes, as Tiger Claw's mentioning in the chat, today's uh, topic is going to be about video game packaging, especially in the past. Um, I think it's more timely than ever. Uh, it was something my wife kind of brought up because she watched me open a game recently, Chip, and there was no instruction booklet. Uh, I, I was actually quite surprised that there was a disc in there instead of a, uh, you know, code. instead of a code. <laughs> and uh, she goes, well, they're still giving you cases, though, for the disc. And I was like, yeah, they'd like to turn it to sleeves like Japan does if they could. Um, and so well, getting was... a getting a new game used to be an event. Yes. Yes, it did. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you you would have uh, the the box itself with some Usually some interesting artwork. I can't say great because we know. I'm sure we might get into uh, a lot of the unfortunate covers over the years. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> the disc or cartridge itself, mm -hmm. um, maybe a little swag, and usually a fantastic uh, booklet telling you how to play the game, giving you the backstory, all of that. Yes. Yes, and now, like you said, you're lucky if you get a disc. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's, I love watching them try and take, uh, 
reduce or minimize the packaging more and more. Yeah, like it's in, like we know you want to go pure retro or pure uh, pure digital. Digital. I mean, I guess it's as it's as compelling an argument as any at this point. But I think I think this generation we're going to see everything um, migrate that way, or at least that's the way the game companies want us to. Um, I feel pretty confident that Sony and, and Microsoft, uh, and I'm not so sure about Nintendo, but Sony and Microsoft can definitely, uh, you know, I feel that the their networks are as versatile in terms of storing the games on, uh, 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 in terms of storing the games on their cloud, so to speak, mm-hmm. so you can download them at any time. I feel confident about any game I purchase right now being available, especially on the new systems, so... But, I, I mean, even the green boxes, which first got thinner in terms of uh, the the thickness of the box. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're flimsy now. Before, you could almost kill somebody with them. Yes, you could. And that's actually going to be the topic of one of our first uh, things. I'm going to go in somewhat chronological right. order, Chip, right. but there's going to be nothing to it. Uh, real quick, though, I did want to open the show. Uh, Chip, just like the B team, community is number one in the all mm-hmm. games community primarily, but also the individual communities that uh, have supported both our shows. And... Um, uh, so, so number one, I wanted to open up with, uh, with, with a couple of, uh, messages and, and emails I got over the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is going to address a very important issue that I don't think I've come out and straight up said. And so I want to on how to get the podcast and the easy ways to find it. Um, but before we do any of that, I just wanted to open up and let you guys know that this show is live. Yes, friends, it is live on all games every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you come out there, you can go to allgames.com. There's a little button in the upper right-hand corner. You can play the, 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 uh, the show streaming. And if you go to forward slash chat or just click on the chat link, boom, you type in a name. Doesn't matter what it is. You are in the chat. No registration involved. So come join us. We've got some great chat out there right now um and so uh, uh be part of it it's it, there's definitely a, a side show that could always be uh you know in the transcription for the show i've often thought about just stealing the uh, chat and putting it in a note document and letting people read what we were talking about but anyway um but yeah first up is um i believe he's a newer listener but i can't speak for this specifically and i believe it's um it, uh, it, the spelling of the name uh, is Jam, J-A-M, but it might also be Yam. I could see that depending on uh, their their nationality. But uh, but he says he lives in the U.K., so maybe it is Jam. I don't know. But one way or the other, he wrote in and he said, I just want to write in and say I think your podcast is a great listen every week. Since I live in the U.K., it's quite hard for me to listen live, but hopefully someday I will. Now, I don't know if uh, this being at uh, you know 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, helps that any, but that does still put it like after midnight i think in the uk so it's not yes a whole lot easier but it's definitely easier than 11 or than midnight eastern or 11 p.m eastern standard time like we used to do so um he said i do have a question are you planning to do another survival horror retrospective like last year when you did the uh the obscure survival horror episode um i would love to listen to a silent hill retrospective or a re- revised resident evil one love the last one you did so uh, he's referring to, I did a Resident Evil podcast, but it was one that I recorded way back when, way back when I was doing VGP, like early into VGP. So, um, 
So I want to thank Jam for writing in, but uh, yeah, I think we could do something like that. I think near the end of October, I can I can swing something in that regard. So I guess the next question is uh, he's he's mentioned a Silent Hill retrospective. Um, I've played one, two, and three. I don't know that that qualifies me enough for a retrospective, uh, but I was kind of thinking about getting a good Silent Hill fan on, getting a good Resident Evil fan on, me moderating the two, and just kind of going back and forth for a couple hours. So. That's my thoughts. I guess we'll see what all uh, what all happens with that. But uh, but uh, yes, Jam, you're not falling on deaf ears. Uh, we will we will plan something. Um, I've also had someone reach out to me uh, who wants to be on the show and talk about uh, survival horror anyway. So maybe we'll be able to bridge those gaps. Um, next up, the next one comes from a gentleman who goes by the name Thomas. Uh, he says, I've been trying to download your Zelda podcast for like a week now on all games. I'm simply getting a file not found error, but the only problem I had was he gave me a link. And when I click on that link, um, and it is the one that's on all games, I confirm that to me, it goes immediately to allowing me to download it, or I can pick the stream option. Now, I'm using Firefox, but I don't think that's anything fancy. And when I tried it on my phone, it goes straight to streaming it. So I don't know what's quite going on there, Thomas, um, but it seems like it might be something with how uh, maybe how the browser is responding to it. Um, so I guess for an easier way to handle it... Um, you can go if you go to gaminghistory101.com and click on podcast. It'll it'll kind of move you over here. I usually do that for ease. But for those wondering where the specific podcast site is, it is gaminghistory101.podbean.com, and it has an archive, kind of like you would see in a blog of all our episodes. Um, and I also found out the reason why we're a little bit difficult to find, and it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a uh, XML file kind of issue, an RSS issue. Um, but I talked to Podbean, and they said the feed burner was established way back when this way, and they can't really affect it without breaking the feed. So they're looking into it for me. But um, if you type Gaming History 101, all lowercase, no spaces, it pops right up on Stitcher, iTunes, Google, the whole nine yards. And so that may be an easy way to find it too. So hopefully you'll have better luck finding the podcast um, and uh, from what I can tell, all the links on all games work great too. So um, I don't know why you were having that initial problem, but those are available. And then any of the episodes, you can just, you know, when you find them on Gaming History 101, there is a streaming option. And if you click on the podcast tag or whatever, or category, it'll have all of them on there. So um, I don't know, your call. Hopefully that will help you out. If you're still having problems, Thomas, write in again and let me know. And I will, uh, you know, kind of email you and troubleshoot this a little stronger. Um, but that's it. So that's, uh, that's it for the uh, listener mail and things like that. So I think, uh, like we talked about chip without further ado, we should just kick right into it. So I think, I think there's one bit more bit of house cleaning, clean, yeah, cleaning. We need to discuss Fred. And are you, uh, what are you referring to specifically? I think I know, but I'm going to bait you. The all game community awards show. Oh yes, definitely. Yes. Which you are nominated for multiple uh categories including uh most informative show yes uh voice you want narrating your life (laughs) and i i off the top of my head i don't know the rest uh are you up for any other ones Uh, i think i'm in for best caller but i think that was uh i called into vgo a little while uh Claiming to be a different nerd who was uh, different fanboy, fanboy of, of the week. Yeah. And those were hilarious. You know what? And I did a PlayStation one that I thought was probably the funniest of them all because, um, uh, well, yeah, I might redo it because uh, 
I happened to be a last minute guest on that episode, so John and I decided to drop that one. But I wanted to do it because people have pointed out that I haven't done the uh, that the uh, the Sony one. So, but Normie's kicking your ass in that. Category. I bet she Fairly. is. She's a better caller. <laughs> out of the eight of you uh, that are up for that, she has fifty one percent of the vote. Good for her. <laughs> yeah. uh, good for her. Maybe that's why they made her kind of like a. Semi-permanent host, <laughs> but, uh, but um, are you're you're in my other show are also up for about eight awards. Yes, the B team's taking it home on this one. Uh, so. Yes, the B team podcast is up for best interview, uh, best host chemistry, best convention coverage, uh, best production value, best theme song. Uh, Voice you want narrating your life. Both you and Chris are up for this. Chris is kicking yeah. your ass. Okay. Okay. Well, and um, Chris, Chris is kicking everybody's ass. Mm-hmm. Um, with for good reason. The man's got some sexy vocals. Yes, we've had multiple reviews commenting <laughs> on Chris's sexy voice. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, for some reason they nominated me for favorite host. So there you uh, go. Yeah, uh, that. That kind of blew me away when I saw that. But please go over to allgames.com, click on the link for the All Games Award Show, and uh, go vote for the B-Team Podcast and Gaming History 101 in all our various categories. Uh, And remember to vote early and often. You can vote once a day, once in a 24-hour period. Yep, yep. And those who have been rallying for a certain one definitely are, are are known and and for good reason plus it'll introduce you to maybe some shows you weren't aware mm-hmm. of or haven't been listening to so that's also a good thing so um but there's uh, a ton of great shows on all games network uh but uh but yeah yeah um so without further ado i guess we'll jump into it sorry i, I yep. kind of got sidetracked there i was trying to type and talk which is a very dangerous thing for hosts to do so if yes. you're going to do a live show be very careful when taking that risk. But <laughs> um, all right, so yeah, we're just gonna take a step back. And and Chip, you know, you kind of talked to me about uh, about letting me take lead here. So, mm-hmm. but hopefully, uh, some of these things will uh, will jog your memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, I do know that technically the Intellivision was probably the first game with box copies, and I know they had inserts like because it was kind of like a pong clone right you had to you had to um tape like a an overlay on your screen that would give the little beeps and boops and like lights and and little dots you know wow you're going way back yes with the intellivision like in the 70s unfortunately i have yet to find a fully boxed intellivision game now now the Intellivision inserts went over the controller, not over the TV. Oh, my God. Wait. I'm thinking of the Odyssey. I'm sorry, guys. Probably somebody was going to call me out. I'm talking about the Magnavox Odyssey. Sorry. The Intellivision was the controller overlays, and we'll talk about those in a sec. But I'm the, talking about the Odyssey. Even the Odyssey, I don't recall television You're probably thinking overlays. of the Odyssey 2. Yes. The Odyssey sorry. 1 from 72 yes. to 76 is the one I'm thinking of. But okay. you're right. They did redesign it. The Odyssey 2 was a true blue cartridge-based system. I think all the Odyssey 1 did was it was like dip switches. So it just affected the dip switches. That's all the cart really did. It didn't have any actual programming on it. But, uh, but yeah, and, and Chip, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can attest to at that time, 
Um, I don't know if you knew anybody who had them or anything like that, but in, in 74, 75, 76, I'm told that the, the Pong clones, um, cause the, the, I believe the Odyssey was super expensive, like in the five to $700 range or something. Um, I think three, but you got to remember $300 in I'm 19... for inflation. Yeah. <laughs> seven. Cause I, well, I can kind of retro it back in a sec, but, um, $300 was, uh, you know, almost a car back in 1975. Uh, yes, in, definitely. In was. terms, in terms of, uh, value. Uh, I think I, my, well, my first console, quote unquote console was actually the Coleco Telstar, which was, which was a gray box about, uh, I don't know, think the size of a standard keyboard, uh, a large keyboard. And with two knobs and a couple of dip switches in the middle. And I think that was going for 35 to 50 bucks back then. Uh, when I got my Atari, and I'm going to guess it was 77 or 78, my Atari 2600, that was 199 And that's why the $200 price point for years was uh, the make or break deal with any and and some argue even today um Mm -hmm. you know is the make or break magic price point for any console because anything over uh, you know two hundred dollars in 1970 in the 70s was you know some people's uh, entire week's paycheck oh yeah most definitely (laughs) so or you know maybe even uh their month's paycheck so um that that was a big a much bigger deal than it was today. So I think the Odyssey came in probably at the 300 mark. And you know what? I'm an idiot because on Gaming History 101, I actually cover this. So I'm pulling that up right now. I do have um, a, a feature set called uh, under the lessons category called, uh, uh, what did I call it? Um, here we go. Generation Gap. And it documents every major console that came out in America. And I do have launch prices. So okay. that would probably be the smartest place to start looking for it. So You're the history historian here, man. I'm just the asshole with the mic. Let's get this straight. <laughs> Magnavox Odyssey. Launch price was uh, 75 to $100 retail dependent in 72. However, right. um, Pong clones seem to reach the 150 mark. And the okay. Odyssey 2 would launch at 199 So that sounds okay. consistent to what you're right. talking about, Chip. Um, the 2600 or VCS launched mm-hmm. at 200 Yeah. Um, and uh, the the Intellivision and the Cole- or the ColecoVision also launched at 200 So there you go. But mm-hmm. the Intellivision was the big dog. He launched at 300 Yeah, um, and I remember begging and pleading my father to uh, get me one. The bastard never did. Uh, <laughs> showing him Donkey Kong in Keldor's saying, Dad, it's just like the arcade. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, yeah, and it's interesting because the Coleco releasing in 82 uh, really just didn't get a chance to get on its feet. But the one thing that is true, Chip, is, I mean, all of these, like you're talking about. Now, you said you had a Coleco Adam? No. Or nope. what was never the one got, you said never, you had? I went uh, the Coleco Telstar. 
Oh, the Telstar. There you go. Okay, yes. It was Pong Hockey, which is Pong with two things, uh, with two paddles, and um, Handball. That was, <laughs> which was, that, that was all the thing had on it. And there was no cartridges, no nothing. It was those three games. You played to 15. Really? Yeah, and so yes. that's definitely of yes. the. Uh, I would say that's of the Pong clone generation. Yeah, and those um, those were probably fifty bucks. And am I correct? Those were built in, right? It there's there's nothing cartridge based really no. about. Them. Oh no, it was that's it. Those three games, that's it. You're done. <laughs> it, it was great for a week, and then you know it collected dust like most of today's consoles. Or this the current gen's consoles, because we are we are in the next gen now, right, Fred? Uh, are we? Yes. Yes. And, yes? The first, yes. and the first current gen console has been collecting dust since it came out last. <laughs> so. Hey, man, John was talking about it. It's super advanced, HDMI only, with no uh, fiber optic out. Which, by the way, John, I've got a solution for you. I'll hit you up. But anyway, um, what type uh, of TV doesn't have an HDMI? I think that's back. what he's not thinking of. Um, but anyway, uh, but uh, but yeah, I think the number one, the big one is, uh, you know, in 77, the VCS would drop. Now, this is probably the mm-hmm. first console that through, you know, kind of the 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 Nolan Bushnellisms and, and whatnot, uh, that instead of being, you know, a Pong clone or, I mean, in all fairness, the Fairchild, the Fairchild Channel F. Um, or VES, Video Entertainment System, predates the Atari and did have cartridges. Again, this is one of those things where I haven't found a working Fairchild, nor can I find any box copies. But as far as the Atari goes, I did actually buy Atari 2600 games because um, they were easy to find in stores. People don't talk about this, but most of the 80s you could find random, uh, especially gaming stores that would have leftovers, especially... once uh, they re-released the, oh, what was the 8000 series? The 8700 or whatever. The, Let's see, 2600, 5200, wasn't it the 7800? 7800, there we go. Yeah. Um, you started to see that stuff, and I think the 7800 was backwards compatible. I know the 5200 was not. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, do you remember anything about the Atari carts? Oh, I, I had hundreds of Atari carts. I mean... The Atari became my life. Um, I, I was trying to think today. I mean, uh, the, the the box art was pretty uh, piss poor. I don't think you can get around that. Most of the <laughs> stuff was pretty horrific. Um, eh. well, you know, I mean, the Spider-Man, maybe the Raiders of the Lost Ark. When the system hit its stride and once Warner Brothers bought uh Atari, and then Warner Brothers also owned DC, and there was some synergy, and I have no idea why, but, you know, the box art started to improve near the end of it, but, um... They probably stole licensed box art. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, uh, DC had a uh, comic book, the Atari Force. Yes, yes, they did. That is a very Um, good point. I forgot about the Atari Force. I think I had every issue, too. Um, Both of them? Really? No. (laughs) It actually went on for a while. No shit. I would would say they got a year out of it. Um, Wow. That is pretty impressive, actually. The, um, but, 
I mean, it was it was still basically a cardboard box. Yeah, I do remember the the Atari ones at least for yeah. a while. But you know what, Chip? I'm actually thinking I'm thinking of the 5200 games because I think the 2600 were the very colorful boxes, right? And Activision obviously had its very specific logos because I'm thinking of like Breakout, or actually, I don't think I'm thinking of Breakout. I think I'm thinking of Kaboom. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the Defender box. Uh, Donkey Kong switched it up a little, right? Because despite being ugly, didn't Donkey Kong have the white cart? You know, 52, my father never would get me a 5200. Oh, I was I, talking about the 2600. Sorry, I'm jumping around on you. Donkey Kong didn't come out on the 2600, I don't think. Oh, okay. Um, the company back then that had the best boxes, I'm trying to remember their name. I want to say it was Imagine or Imagic or something like that, but they were silver chrome boxes. The And these are the ones I'm thinking of, Imagic. Something like that. And uh, they had Atlantis Attacks and a couple yes. other games that were... I mean, Moon the boxes looked... Hmm? They had Moon Sweeper. Okay. I, I had three like or four. Riddle of the Sphinx was one of their games. Yes. Um, and, I mean, the boxes looked absolutely spectacular. The games, well, you know. We gave you a really nice box. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's what I'm thinking. Um, I think this is a 2600. Actually, I'm sure of it. But here's Dragonfire Chip. I'm popping it in the mm-hmm. chat there, the All Games chat here. I'll give it to you over here. Um, but uh, that's a pretty cool one. Um, I'm sure the game was nowhere near as cool as that box. Um and they had Trick Shot looked pretty cool. Uh, but you're right. They had that uh, that silver aesthetic to them, both on the cart and on the box. And they were, um, they were, uh, yeah, it was um, iMagic was the name of the company. Uh, they had the best boxes I remember. Yeah, well, and, and you know what I remember? Uh, and this is where I'm going back to the 5200. I'm pretty sure it was the 5200, um, and I'm pulling up some box art to look at it. But didn't they have the universal um, silver Atari? The Atari games all had that silver packaging that was bright. And yes, okay, yes, these are exactly what I'm thinking of. Let me show you the Defender box. They all had this, like, signature Atari like silver yes. look to them and they had that universal um near the end they did that yes is that what it was it was near the end okay because i remember and if you want to see a really good example of these like live in the flesh like a a live unboxing remember when those were a big deal uh <laughs> like right now um there's one in the tv or the movie uh cloak and dagger cloak and dagger is all about atari carts and in it um they unbox a 5200 cart of cloak and dagger um, which I think was just built for it, but it, either way, it, it was exact packaging. And I remember those always looking really cool to me. Um, you know, and, and Atari carts, man, didn't those just feel like you could not break them? Yes. I feel like I could have dropped them out of a car, run them over. You know what? It reminds me of, Chip, have you ever seen the 1990s movie Airheads, where the, uh, where Brendan Fraser and Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi take over a radio station? Mm, not sure you missed that gem okay well in it the reason it's funny is because the movie will make like no sense to kids of this generation because in it there's a scene where she his girlfriend is listening to his demo tape in her in her old cadillac boat 
and she's like, what is this shit? And she ejects it, and it's his cassette tape, and she throws it on the side of the road. And throughout the movie, you keep getting clips back to what's happening to this cassette tape. And, like, a bum steps on it, a dog pisses on it, a lowrider comes over and does its hydraulics and breaks it. And they're able to undo it, re-spool it, and still play it. And I always felt like an Atari cart was very much like that, was that anything could happen to it, and it's really just the casing surrounding the chips, which would be just fine, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah, I remember those. Now, on the flip side, oh, and Derek and uh, Tigerclaw did say, I am thinking of the right one. I guess the Donkey Kong 5200 cart. Uh, the game's terrible. But the cart itself uh, was uh, was white, so there you go. One of the okay. first examples of a special cart. And so. and going back to Atari packaging, mm-hmm. um, originally that all of the Atari cartridges, I mean, they'd be you know it was like a pack of Skittles. You know, they were the colors of the rainbow. I remember all the boxes. <laughs> yeah. okay. and then shortly before either. Shortly after the 5200 came out or just before with the 2600, they standardized all the boxes to gray with a picture. And so there was mm-hmm. – uh, and it, actually looking back on it now, unless you looked at the number on the side, you could be – if you had a 5200, you could very easily buy a 2600 uh, cartridge for uh, one of your games. Oh yeah, and and especially because they a lot of fifty two hundred games are re releases of twenty six hundred mm-hmm. games, um, so you could see where that would be a major problem, especially because they're not backwards compatible. Everything else was uh, with the Atari, <laughs> such as the Coleco and the Intellivision, but not the fifty two hundred. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, and you know. Uh, uh, Activision was great back then with their packaging. Oh, yeah. uh, they ha- and then on top of that, and I know you want to get into manuals at some point here. Uh, you know, it was amazing the amount of information you got on a game where your controls were a joystick and one button. Yeah. Yes, and it was a very smart move, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're still playing the same thing. I think one of my favorite examples is Adventure. <coughs> yes. I, I can't remember with the the instruction manual. And Chip, I have a fascination with instruction manuals. So the one mm. thing I will tell people that they may not be aware of on Gaming History 101 um, is whenever I review a retro game, I include a link in the header of the of the review that has a, a, a scan of the instruction manual. So that's definitely something to check out. I don't think I do it on like PS2 or Xbox One games because those are a little harder to come by. But mm-hmm. definitely like any Nintendo, Atari, any games like that, I do get scans of the manuals for you. So that's kind of cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, adventure, right? You're you're a you're a square yep, going to rob a key from a duck, and yes. uh, and the instruction manual told a different tale. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I played were, that game forever. I love that game. It, you know, it's one of the few games I think on the twenty six hundred. I know I'm going to get some flack for this, but I think if you didn't play it growing up, it's one of the few games that you can still. I wouldn't say enjoy, but you can appreciate today. Yeah, it's hard, man. That, that, <laughs> They're it, all it, very hard to go back to. Yeah, it's. 
I bought uh, when I got my uh, iPad, and they came out with, I think it was a hundred ge- uh, Atari game compilation for that. Yes, I, I went and gave them the fifteen dollars for it, and after about fifteen minutes, I don't think I've ever gone back to it. Those games are rough. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to go that far back now. Yes. Well, like, yeah, for example, like, I'm just looking at the adventure manual right now on Atari Age, and it's like, level one, you depress the game reset switch to begin play. You see a key to the golden castle. Unlock the castle. Uh, to unlock the castle, you must steal the key from the golden dragon, you know, and all this stuff. Like, it tells, you like... You need to get the, the eye-shaped doohickey away from the giant duck. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. It was so funny, too, how that worked out. Because even my wife laughed at it because she grew up playing uh, Adventure on her dad's old um, Atari 2600 because uh, he didn't buy anything for them until 92. So from 1984 to 1992, she grew up with a 2600 until he finally broke down and bought them a SNES. So... Uh, she recently, I got my hands on one of those, uh, the Atari 2600, uh, oh, what were they called? There was the retro console and there were two, there's four different versions that have come out now. I got number two because you can mod it to take Atari carts. Um, I think it's called like the retro playback or something. And, uh, but it's got 40 games built into it. And when I started playing it, it's like, oh, really? (laughs) She goes, that looks, that is exactly what you said. It's a square stealing from a duck. Um, but yeah, I mean, they had to paint a picture for you because essentially you didn't know what you were looking at on the screen, right? <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah, that was, that was, like I said, most of, most of what I remember from that time period. I don't think they differ too much with the Intellivision or the Coleco. Do you know? What well, House like stuff. with with just the packaging being the same, it was kind of like a disposable box that would house the cart. There would be an instruction manual in there. Um, there might have been. I, again, I haven't seen too many in television or Coleco games in box, um, but I just don't recall them being too dynamically different. Were well, they? Well, the thing with, and I, I didn't see much of them because I didn't have an Intellivision or uh, Coleco Vision. Uh, the Intellivision, you had the inserts for, or overlays for your controllers. That had yes, be- okay, so yeah, that is an important pack-in we should mention. Um, so the Intellivision control panel, you know, uh, was definitely uh, what was it? Was it nine or twelve keys? I can't remember. I think it was I- ten. I think it okay. It was it was nine to t- you would have zero through nines. And probably a few extra keys on there. Yeah, there was. I think there was pound and star, you know, because yeah. you wouldn't want to go too far with it. <laughs> but, uh, and actually, Chip, I'm, I'm going to throw it in the chat. Here's a picture of the overlays. Um, something Atari would, would be very jealous of as proof uh, to the fact that they integrated it into a console in 1994. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the overlays, uh, would basically allow them to have a pretty dynamic controller, I guess I would say, when you when you booted up a game. Although I never really thought they did anything too fancy. I remember playing skiing. Yeah, and you, you're showing the picture of the controller now. Um, I remember the baseball was actually pretty good on it because I think uh, you could each button would uh, reference a specific base, and it, you know, so it'd be like. 
and I'm looking at your control your controller picture here now. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like two, four, six, eight. You know, would be six would be first, two would be second, four would be third, and eight would be home. And you could hit that button to throw to them. If I recall, that makes and, sense, right? Because you yeah. can line up the pitches to it, right. which is actually pretty dynamic for something in the late seventies, to be honest. And you know, very various buttons would be your screwball or curveball and your fastball. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, it was only when I got to play it over at my friend's house. Um, so yeah, I mean, but I mean, it had twelve buttons. I had one on my Atari joystick. Yes, <laughs> yes. And you know what? People obviously thought that was um, a pretty good idea because the ColecoVision and the 5200 would steal mm-hmm. that concept uh, immediately following. In fact, uh, you know, Chip, uh, you can probably attest to this. Save for turning that uh, circular pad at the bottom um, into a joystick, that's pretty much every controller you had from like 79 to... 84 <laughs> to be honest with you um you know we i think we take the d-pad for granted it was uh it was it was nintendo's patented invention mm. like for real and it was it was a big deal it was in the game and watch i'll give them that but that was still a nintendo product um by the way doing a little research atari force lasted for 20 issues no shit so that's almost two years right yeah yeah because that was still a monthly thing Yes. It went from yeah. January of 84 to August of 85. Wow. 85. So it lived through the crash and almost into to the, the next Nintendo gen. generation. Yep. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and now I did want to say something real quick. Is Well, are you ready to move on to? Sure. Okay. I think I want to stay on consoles for a minute here. Mm-hmm. However, we're going to jump back, and I think the best time is between the 8 and the 16-bit generation. I want to jump back and talk a little bit about PC games, because that's going to be a big deal. And, Chip, I'm sure we've got some examples. Um, and microcomputer games, which is basically in America. Sorry, you Europeans. Basically, we're just talking com- uh, Commodore 64, what, Atari 400-800? Yes, Maybe the atom, which I was misspelling as atom in chat. I, I knew it was the atom, as in you know the first guy in Garden of Eden. And I think that's it, right, for our microcomputers that were really mainstream. Yes. But anyway, but I have a couple of things to say about some of those microcomputers. But uh, um, but without further ado, I mean, let's just jump right into it. Kind of coming out back to back. Uh, oh, well, not in this country, though. Well, yeah, for the most part. Back-to-back in most of the continental United States, we get the NES, um, which did technically come out in 85. So all you historians out there, yeah, I know it came out in 85. But it really didn't. It came out in New York and limited FAO Schwartz releases. In fact, I remember um, – no, I was too young. It must have been 86. But I remember going to the FAO Schwartz in Chicago in 86 – and it was a display, but it wasn't the mass display you would have expected. I don't really think the Nintendo caught on heavily until 87. They were definitely buying games, but it became a much bigger deal in 87. But anyway, in 85, 86, you're looking at both the Sega Master System and the NES. Um, 
I almost want to talk about the Master System first because it was pretty consistent with its packaging, whereas NES, I think, was a little crazier. Um, I don't know, Chip, did you ever have a Master System, or have you seen any yes. of these packaging? Yes, I um, I actually, I don't know if I had the Master, I think I bought the the retro thing for the Genesis for the Master System. So you could play Master System cartridges on your Genesis? Oh, yes, the power base converter. Yes. <laughs> and once I got that, I went back and I uh I dabbled in the 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 library a bit. Mm-hmm. Um well it was the, what was it called? The Sega A Master System. Master System, that's Mark right. three for those of you Japanese people. Um, uh so yeah, I, I remember, and they had great boxes because, like, uh, both the Genesis and the Master System had hard plastic boxes for their cartridges. Mm-hmm. They did. Which uh, was nice because... Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Oh, I was going to say Sega stuck with them um, yeah. uh, going through, which is why nowadays, and I, I'm sure you'll attest to it. Well, actually, you're not much of a collector of old games, but nowadays that's why it's easier to find complete in-box versions of most of the Sega games because mm. they were like VHS cases, right? They they were somewhat indestructible. <laughs> yes. The, it was an indestructible case for the indestructible cartridge within, within it. Yes. Um, Those those things are going to those things and the cockroaches and Twinkies (laughs) will be the last things left on on Earth. Um, But yeah, I I mean, the Nintendo Nintendo was still in the they were still basic cardboard boxes, if I recall. Right. I don't think Nintendo ever. Nintendo always had cardboard boxes. Um, Ah, guess who wants to join us? Derek. Yes, indeed. Here he comes. Yes, Mr. Derek of all games. What's up? Hey, guys. I heard you were talking about the... Oh, crap. Hold on. I put the call on hold. I'm going to hang up on you, go back to the other one, and add you in, okay? Sure. Sorry. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> no, bro. We just lost the live feed because I'm an idiot. Um, <clears throat> now I'm going to add Derek the appropriate way. Sorry. <laughs> uh Anyway, um, but Derek, you with us? Yeah. Excellent. I heard you guys were talking about, you got to the, I was, I was listening quietly in the, in the chat room at allgames.com slash chat. Uh, but then you got to the second master system, which, mm-hmm. uh, I, I had, I had the, I believe I had the first one. I, I the first one off the, off the truck in Virginia, I believe was in my house. No kidding. It was, it was a great system. So you were the one, huh, in Virginia? I was the one guy that would go into uh, Toys R Us and also Toy Castle uh, and and look at the wall because they had one wall would be all the different colored uh, boxes for Nintendo games. And then the opposite wall uh, would be all of the white grid boxes. <laughs> I was going to say, yes. The, the, the master system. And you know what? I kind of liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was kind of cool. I thought yeah. it was like, these guys, these guys can't, these guys are serious about their, about their games. They're not messing around. They're technical. <laughs> the, the, the branding is sound. You couldn't, you couldn't mistake the game for anything but a master system game. And they also had the, they had like, uh, the cards 
and then they had what they called the four mega cartridge, which oh, just yes. sounds like something that you needed to have. <laughs> yeah, yes. I agree. Uh, Sega was great at selling you useless peripherals. Look, I don't know what a mega is, but this one has four of them. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so I gotta get, I gotta get that on Rocky, and you know what? It worked because, as far as I'm concerned, the those games looked better, and those boxes were were hard clamshells, unlike the Nintendo boxes, which were just cardboard and just fell apart. And all you had was that little plastic sleeve left. For the Sega Master System, you had a full, almost like a VH, like the old VHSs when they first came out, it came out as big, giant plastic clamshells that you yes. could, like you, like you said about Airheads, you could throw them, in the, throw them in the street and nothing would happen to them. That's what the Sega Master System cards came in, and it just felt better. Everything was yep. better about it. Yeah, like if you ever woke up to an intruder in your house and um, he had a gun, and and this <laughs> kind of shit happened in the '80s. We don't talk about it much, but that happened all the time. Anyway, um, if you happen to have a copy of Rambo Three in the box on you, you could just strap that shit in your chest and you know kind of run full force into him, and you probably make it out okay. And um, the box for the Sega Master System itself, also that same white grid, <laughs> except it had. I, I had the the super system that came. I had the the 3D one that came with the 3D glasses and the gun, yeah. and so the box itself, you could just stare at that box and know something great was inside it. It wasn't. It wasn't like the the Nintendo box. I believe had Rob on the front. Had a, a picture, <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> which is just sad. But this one had a Rob picture. is the herald of nothing good. Yeah, n- nothing ever good came from Rob. But that yeah. gun. Look, yep. an America, a gun in America and a kid, there's nothing else. That, I don't understand how that didn't outsell Nintendo 8 to 1. No, and you know what? I mean, looking back on it, Derek, and I know it's kind of uh, critical, but uh, and people will probably disagree with me because fanboys exist everywhere, even back in these days. Um, but, you know, the closest litmus test I've ever done was Wonder Boy versus Hudson's Adventure Island, right? I mean... Roughly, they are the same games with a palette swap, or not a palette swap, but sprite swap. Aren't and they I, both Hudson games. I think they were both developed by Hudson, but for some weird reason, Sega had the rights to Wonder Boy, and it didn't coincide with Nintendo's lockdown procedures on not allowing third-party releases on any other console. And somehow they both got released, but you—they're basically the same game. I mean, they're all but the exact same game. And I booted both up and then did like a switch box, an AB switch box. You actually have to have some of these weird things if you're gonna mm-hmm. play retro consoles. And uh, went back and forth. And I do believe that from a technical standpoint, the Sega Master System can generate better graphics. Uh, it's just wasn't as popular. Oh yeah, I think hands down the Sega Master System. Was a more powerful machine than the NES. Didn't have Mario though. No, no, it didn't it have didn't. Mario. And Alex Kidd was not going to fill that gap, despite what Sega wanted you to believe. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, it I, had I, fantasy I, stuff. Mario, Mario is still to this to this day a great game. By the you can tell by the fact that they're still remaking the exact same game on the Wii U. It's yeah. still it's still Mario, but yeah, you play Alex Kidd now, and it's not good. <laughs> no, it's not. None of them are good. Alex Kidd, Alex Kidd in Shinobi World, Alex Kidd in, uh, what's the other one? Fantasy World, I think. Yeah. yeah. They, they, <laughs> but the one thing I will give that console is um, I love the light gun games more than the Nintendo light gun games. Um, 
Gangsterland. Gangsterland was great. Uh, oh, the Hogan's Operation Alley? Wolf on it is really good. Hogan's Alley is actually Nintendo only, I believe. Okay. I think that's a Nintendo internal developed because I think it also right. had a cabinet. But Rambo um, Three though was it Rambo was Three was the shit. Inc- um, uh, missile com- Missile Defense Three D. Yes, I have which, that. To this just now, uh, uh, the uh, with the Oculus Rift and the Three DS in two thousand and twelve two thousand thirteen, they're now just catching up to the Sega Master System and its three devices. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but it's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, like I said, the, the Master System games, uh, that is what I liked about them. You could put them on a shelf, and they had the card thing. I, I always liked the cards because um, I was, like, one of the only people who, when I saw the Turbo Graphics come out with the Hue cards, I was like, oh, cool. They, they copied the Master System. And people were like, what? <laughs> I think I Haunted was- House was the first one I got that was a card, and I was like, what is this? Yeah, but the cards, I believe, were a mistake because – Kids, I don't like. I guess other countries are more uh, are more understanding than Americans are. But when you show somebody a a, a cart, a, like no, a card mm-hmm. for uh, for the Sega Master System, or even the cart, the cartridges were also were also smaller they than were. in the Nintendo cartridge. The Nintendo cartridge is a big, giant, gray brick. And it's so funny when you open them up because most of them use a fraction, like thirty yeah. percent of that real estate. There's nothing in there. It's all air. Yeah, but. You, like you, you, a parent would look at that and say, "Look, I can either get you this little card, this credit card thing, for fifty dollars, or I can get you this giant brick. This one has to have more game inside of it than the other." So that's yeah. what happened. I, I believe that also led to the downfall. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think there were a lot of good reasons, and I think the biggest one was definitely because uh, it's a, a slightly different, although not greatly different, tale in Japan, and it is a drastically different tale in uh, the UK. Um, but that's because Nintendo kind of screwed over the UK for a long time. Um, but uh, but I, I do think that the lockout that Nintendo had over games in America because of their policies and procedures, which are suspect at best monopoly near illegal at worst only atari was man enough to fight him only atari was man enough to fight though well tengen evil practice tengen yeah atari games under the tengen tengen yeah and according to just don't want to do it under their own name they're they're not crazy i mean they're gonna they're gonna make up a a pretend name to do it but well they weren't exactly legal about it but hey (laughs) Uh, i had that cartridge too man I oh, yeah, Tengen the, carts were fucking awesome. Uh, I, I had the Tengen uh, Tetris. Really? That's uh, If you had that now, that would be worth a couple bucks. You're not going to yeah. pay your mortgage on it, but it's worth a couple bucks. Uh, that got that was one of the ones that got stolen in the the great cellar robber uh, oh, yes. burglary of 1991. Oof. Yes. That robber, if, if he sat on his laurels and didn't hit the pawn shop, he's uh, he must have... Well, actually, it's actually now worth probably what it was worth back then. So, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, real quick with the Sega stuff again. Um, I do think, like Derek's saying, I think the strength of those game boxes and the fact that they carried them over to a majority of the Genesis um, or Mega Drive for you Europeans and Japanese um, assisted in why it's so easy to get collectible carts of those today, which is why most of my Master System, uh, Derek, that box you talked about, that package that had the 3D glasses and the phaser with two controllers in the console, 
Uh, that's actually the the combo I bought a few years back um, at uh, at a Goodwill for ten bucks with uh, thirty games. Uh, is actually the package that uh, that I got, and um, almost every single one of those games were complete in box. The instructions were somewhat wrinkled, but you know existed, and everything was in there, and the carts fit perfectly in their little cases. I mean, it, it, it's ready to go on a shelf. It's it's pretty impressive. Um, so I mean, it was a, it was a good move. Unfortunately, the master system just didn't perform in America. But what did perform in America? And uh, <clears throat> doesn't hold a candle to its Japanese counterpart uh, in terms of what's in the package, but was the uh, the NES. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and like we've talked about, the NES was pretty, I mean, pretty standard, right? Uh, kind of what we talked about with Atari and and all these other consoles. It was it was a cardboard box that housed a Nintendo cartridge in it that did have the Nintendo plastic sleeve, and and those lived a lot longer life than most of the boxes themselves. Um, and then a game manual that was, it was relatively small. So repackaged, like, I wasn't the, like the Famicom looks nothing like the the, the NES, and the, the cartridges don't even look alike. They re, they re, like, re, right. redesigned all those for the U.S. market, didn't they? Yes, because Nintendo had, and just in case people want to know my sources, David Chef's book, Game Over. I highly recommend it if you can find it. It's out of print, but find it. It's I think it's on digital book formats. But uh, but he talks about it. Uh, Nintendo forced U.S. Uh, and non-U.S. developers that wanted to release in the United States market to buy the carts from Nintendo. And they said everyone was forced to use the exact same cart style. And that Nintendo would adhere to that policy as well. Granted, we all know that since 1987, when The Legend of Zelda came out, that's kind of bullshit. (laughs) Look, we have to abide by the same rules you guys do, except when we don't want to. (laughs) Except when we're really getting behind this thing. Um, It uh, was just a gold cart. It was, other than the color, it was exactly the same. I'll give them that. And they didn't, I don't think Nintendo ever bent on that policy... For any of their carts, actually, on the NES. Color Dreams would do unlicensed stuff, and Tengen would do, too. Color Dreams has the bright blue, you know what I'm talking about, the cotton candy carts. Um, And then uh, Tengen has the black carts that uh, have the weird curve at the top. Um, You could try the same thing, though, with the Genesis. And EA EA said, the hell with that. You're not strong enough to stop them. And they weren't strong enough to stop them. Yeah, although EA did strong arm them with a nice contract, they <laughs> I know that they got the they they got Sega's blessing in the end, but it was one of those things where Sega could either get fucked over completely or take a small cut. Yeah. Um but there are a couple of carts in the NES era that had some awesome pack-ins. Um and I don't know if you guys remember any of them. Um but I definitely remember Metal Gear if you'll recall, uh, very different from the MSX version because they rearranged where you would go. And this is getting very geekish, I know. But if, if you got into the truck and the truck have started to move, um, it would dump you in different areas. And it's linear in the MSX version, but it's not in the uh, <clears throat> Nintendo version. So they gave you a map to show you where everything would go. And I think that map is probably one of the most lost items. Hmm in the history of Nintendo games because I've never found a copy with one in it. 
Um, there are scans online, though, for people who want them. But I remember that being a very helpful thing for those that bought Metal Gear and didn't think it sucked. And I was one of the few who didn't think it sucked. But even my little, like, seven-year-old brain playing it knew that um, the truck have started to move and I feel asleep were not correct translations. <laughs> um, but the you... Rad Racer came with 3D glasses, which it did. nobody cared about because it didn't work. <laughs> no, but it did in Japan. <laughs> but I don't you think can anyone fool yourself into coming. thinking it worked. You can kind of do that now. You ever put 3D glasses on and walk out outside, like on a sunny day? You can kind of lie to yourself and say you're seeing 3D. <laughs> you ever turn on a 3DS and turn up the slider? <laughs> I hear that works sometimes. You can make yourself think you're looking at 3D there too. I remember you ever turn this on a is... Virtual Boy and close one eye. No, I know Elite came out for the for the NES, but I remember when I got the Commodore sixty four version of Elite, it came with an it came with not only the the game manual, but a um, a, a list um, a book that listed every ship, a, a novel of the game, and a giant star map, all That's for like cool. thirty bucks. Yeah, but that this was the era of video game manuals. This is where we got entire novels. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, Your storyline would be in the book. The storyline would be in the book. I mean, I remember things like Master of Orion, and this is going into the 90s a little bit, but, and PC gaming. But, I mean, some of these manuals were 400 pages long. Yes. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> Ultima. Remember Final the, Fantasy's book? Yes. <laughs> I think it had every enemy in it other than the bosses, the unique bosses. There would be like, I mean, you you could have a game like Final Fantasy where literally it was a 40-page m- manual. And then there were games, I remember some PC games, the, the manuals were over 200 pages. Yes. And um, and again, the map was another was another big thing. Um, Lots of fold-out maps. Yes, but I still think uh, one of the most significant pack-ins, because it was required to play the game, and if you didn't have the internet and rented it, you couldn't go any further, was anybody remember a letter from your uncle that was packaged in Star Tropics? Because you get to a certain point in Star Tropics, I think it's about halfway through, your uncle says like something that, uh, as Chip said, kind of harkens back to the PC days. He wants you to put in, like, some code that was in that letter. And if you don't have it, you can't move forward. And I'm all for that. It's a wall. I'm all for <laughs> that. that. And I think the cool thing was you had to put it in paper, and it would reveal the message, and then you dried it out. You mean put it in water? Sorry, put it in paper. Yes, you put the paper in water, and it would reveal the message. So you can well, only that- then you can only play that game once. Well, no, because I think the paper was stronger than regular paper. Like, it was reinforced. I don't think you could tear it very easily. Oh, uh, uh, Derek, as it dried, it would reveal, uh, it would disappear, and then it would reveal itself as it got wet. I don't remember. I can't remember specifically, though. It's a long time ago, man. <laughs> Basically, it, years. it was anti-piracy. It was part of the 19, late 80s, <laughs> early 90s anti-piracy movement. Absolutely. With the, um, uh, what was it? Uh, red, 
red cellophane glasses and <laughs> look at page 12, uh, paragraph three in the instruction manual. What's the third word from the left? <laughs> yep. Um, but there were, like I said, there were some cool pack-ins. Um, I'm trying to remember any other ones from the NES era because I know they existed, but... Uh, uh, does Gyromite yeah. count as a pack-in? No. Gyromite doesn't count as anything. Yeah. I mean, it was Rob's chest, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how they packaged it. He was, like, rubber-banded to his chest because Rob, like me, knew that you could use an NES card as a bulletproof vest. Um, so in case the shit went down, Rob was ready, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think. PC games kind of took over as far as like packing yeah. your open where you would open the box and a lot of stuff would come flying out. Yeah. Uh, are we ready to delve into this shit? <laughs> sure. The console games kind of went with the, here's, here's a fairly thick manual. Uh, and, yeah. and that's, that's about it. Here, here's a Nintendo Power circular or ad uh, for you to go do do that. And, yeah, here's your cartridge. Yeah, Nintendo did hide a lot of this stuff behind that because Nintendo Power – real quick, I want to touch on this and then we'll move on. But Nintendo Power did um, – you know, because it was a Nintendo PR campaign uh, that happened to disguise itself as a magazine. And they really did hide a lot of that stuff behind it, such as – you know, obviously the first episode or the issue of first issue of Nintendo Power had the whole map of Zelda. They would continue a trend like that every issue moving forward. Um, do you remember for a very short period of time, the action set came with the Nintendo Player's Guide, which was all black. And it had like the first 30 games that Nintendo had. And it had the cheat codes. It had the very infamous uh, Mike Tyson cheat codes. So you could go to Mike Tyson, get your ass kicked and go, OK, maybe I should play through this game um, in order to beat it. And I remember that being there. And then, obviously, do you guys remember in, like, the early 90s, I want to say, 91 maybe? They did that thing where if you renewed your subscription, and anyone over, like, a six-month period could renew at this time. And you would get the four manuals, the like, the History of Mario, the Game Boy Guide. They had a bunch of different mm-hmm. guides. They were big books that were freebies um, that are probably worth a couple bucks now. Um, but they were they were kind of supplemental material that would work in that same regard. Nintendo's still trying, like, I would give it to them. Unlike everybody else, Nintendo still kind of has, it's not as extensive as the old Nintendo Power Days, but they still kind of have that going. Like, with, with the points and you log in and, like, you you trade in your Wii points for a little a bag of dice or whatever they give you now, or a calendar. <laughs> yeah. or but nobody else that the I Mario know. Mario swimsuit calendar. Hey, man, I love those see-through Mario playing cards, even though they are a shit freebie. Like, if you were a Nintendo guy from way back when, I believe you could have conceivably gone all the way up to today and still be getting free uh, free uh, Nintendo Swag. stuff. I was a member of Sega Visions. I got the Sega Visions magazine uh, for a good year when it, as it was coming out, and then they switched over to just playing on Sega, and then they disappeared, and I felt kind of... So kind of abandoned by Sega. Nintendo, I believe, would have taken care of me. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the pack-ins was the one place where Sega fell quite a bit short. Um, as far as specialty stuff, I don't think any of their games really did all that much. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, I re- I remember Nintendo in one way or another always having uh, some sort of awesome pack-in solution and things like that. Um, 
But on the PC side, it was a horse of a different color. Um, they gave you all kinds of crazy shit. And people are talking about it right now. Um, I think Ultima was one of the first examples um, with the cloth maps. Um, I think it did have some jewels in it or something. Yeah. I remember a King's Quest having a crazy amount of stuff, too. Well, you had such a big box to... You know, and and there was no standardization of box size for PC games back then. Still uh, you could be as yeah, there still <laughs> isn't pretty much. Uh, uh, you you could be uh, as ostentatious as you wanted. You you know, you could have the box be three feet by two feet if you wanted, and fill it with cement if you you know whatever whatever you know anything goes, and it still goes to an extent, but. It, opening one of those boxes was like a mini Christmas as to what was in there. Yeah, and I almost feel like the special editions of today are taking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of tabs from those those classic pack-in boxes. I'm trying to think of what but were they're some charging the... you for all that extra, right? Crap. Right, which is the problem, right? And I don't know that it's necessarily a problem because that was, you know, that's the thing today, you know, but. Uh, but that's the difference, I guess I would say. Um, but I'm trying to remember. I remember, like, some things come with... Oh, actually, you know what one of the earliest examples I can think of is? Do you guys ever remember playing... Um, I think it was on the Apple II, but it might have been on an IBM, like an early 386. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego came with a... Or not... Uh, yeah. Where in the world came with an entire atlas? And where in time came with an encyclopedia? Do you guys remember that stuff? I remember the Atlas because uh, I remember sitting uh, in in a circle at school, flipping through it as one person worked the computer and the other person worked uh, flipped through the Atlas looking for stuff. Yeah, they and I was too old for that game. Educational <laughs> games are odd. why don't they have educational games like that anymore? Where you actually have to read a book? To yeah, I don't know because I think that book? would be great. <laughs> Uh, my fucking GPS is not coming up with this. Where is Cairo? Is that like a city in upstate New York? Um, but that yeah. atlas, that, that it, it's atlas. an upscale. Cairo is an upscale Kmart, uh, Fred. Cairo <laughs> <laughs> moving into next door yeah. to your local Aldi. Just yeah. watch for it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I remember that. Uh, Changes names every 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 three weeks though. <laughs> I'm trying to remember uh, some of the other crazy stuff. Obviously, Chip's talking about the the whole red uh, cellophane that you would use to reveal special messages and things like that. Um, that was that was your uh, star dock of the '90s uh, in terms of piracy prevention. Yes, <laughs> except. Uh, and I know this isn't on topic, but, uh, uh, Leisure Suit Larry always had my favorite ones because they would ask you pop culture references that were just old yes. enough for people because I think the first game came out in like 85, 86. And so they asked questions literally about the fifties and sixties, hoping you were just old enough to like know some of that stuff. I thought that was pretty good. Um, I don't know that, if I can that answer was the some of the age gate. Yeah, I don't know yes. if I could answer some of those now, to be yeah. honest with you. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, I do remember those, and I remember uh, that was pretty awesome. Um, 
And I'm trying to watch uh, in the chat. I know Maniac Mansion had a fold-out bulletin board poster. Um, Infocom games were, I think, the king of pack-ins, though, because mm -hmm. every, I, I guess, to make up for the fact that they were all text. But yeah. each one, I believe, came with a lot, like uh, like maps or books or uh, a code wheel. Yeah, uh, actually, at this moment, you said that, uh, Derek. Uh, um, Dungeon Buster said Trinity from Infocom came with origami. So, yeah. Take that pre-order bonus for Heavy Rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's another yeah. thing. Everybody got it, not just a few people. If you bought that box, no matter if you got it from Toys R Us or, or uh, Babbage's or Kmart, you got you got all that stuff, which was kind of yeah. kind of which is kind of we we've lost that now. Where if you wanted to, if you wanted the the special uh, headset that comes with a uh, Call of Duty, you got to go to the the fourth best buy on the left and make sure you ask for Dave and, and he'll go <laughs> and get it get it for you. Well, yeah, because that's my GameStop's biggest problem, right? Any of those niche titles and limited editions keep going out to the employee and all his friends, and there's no room left for actual customers. Um, but uh, I'm trying to remember, because I actually played Baldur's Gate when it first came out. Didn't that have some crazy-ass pack-in? I know there was a King's Quest too, and I remember that had everything but the kitchen sink. Like, I seriously think you opened the box and a live dragon leaped out. <laughs> like, I just, I think it was King's Quest six. Like, it was R Roberta Williams, like, everything. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was, it was her apex of her career. And I just cannot remember what the hell was in there. <laughs> but, uh, there, there were just a bunch of crazy pack ins. Yeah. Mouse pads were a big thing all the time. You don't like mm -hmm. have a King's Quest mouse pad or something like that. Um, and 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 the instruction manuals for PC games were ridiculous. <laughs> yes, they were. I mean, I mean they, they were, were they were books. bound books. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't you know five pages and two staples. Right, that was the whole point. Right, they were too thick for staples. That was yes. that was the greatest part of it. I think I remember. Uh, Chip, um, specifically, um, I think I'm going to get this wrong. It was either a King's Quest, it was four, five, or six, or Ultima, either Quest of the Avatar or something like it, was so thick that, like, it was, you literally could not bind it with a staple. Like, it was, yeah. it was, it was huge. Yeah. <laughs> it weighed down the box. It probably increased Fed or UPS prices. I don't know if FedEx was around yet, but uh, you knew it took a lot to ship it. And guys couldn't hoist it. Remember that? <laughs> the days of 18 yeah. discs make a game. Yes. Don't forget the, the – like you guys are, are talking a lot about RPGs, but another one where they went kind of crazy with the manual size, not so much the pack-ins, pack but the, the books and the, like the, the stuff that came with it were the simulation games. Yeah. I was thinking like, Sim City. Sims. Uh, yeah. I was thinking like of uh, Falcon Falcon 3.0 and and M1 Abrams. I, I, I believe yeah. I, I believe the Jane's game came with actual a Jane's manual, so you could like so you could pick out different planes by their silhouettes and stuff like that. It was it, if you wanted to start a small war, all you needed was a couple <laughs> of those uh, manuals, and you had all the information you needed. Hey, yeah, well, didn't the, didn't the 9-11 terrorists use flight simulator or whatever to, for training? Wasn't that the allegation? 
I'm sure the NSA is now listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, there we go. See, national praise. Thank you, Chip. I love America. <laughs> America. But no, no, I mean, there there was, and, and I should be clear, when I said The Sims, I didn't even think about the fact that there's an EA franchise that still exists today called The Sims. I was literally talking about, like Derek said, you know, the simulators, the, the hardcore simulators that uh, – that that looked like uh, yeah, Chip. The I remember Flight Simulator One. I mean, my buddy was really into it. I didn't really mm. care for it. And I think it was one of those first CD-ROM games. Uh, the CD-ROM era brought forth a whole new world of shit. But Flight um, Simulator was still on floppies. Oh, was one. it? Okay, yeah. because it my my roommate, I think, and I want to say it was eighty-seven, eighty-eight ish. Uh huh. Um. So CDs weren't either out yet or um, even available for at that point, or, or, or you know, ridiculously expensive. Um, I remember paying, uh, what was it, like five hundred dollars for, uh, you know, a five hundred megabyte hard drive, you know, things like that back then. <laughs> um, but. Uh, no, I mean those. Yeah, th- those are like 150 page manuals. Yeah, like it looked like a flight manual yeah. yes. that you would see in the cockpit of an yes. actual plane. Spiral <laughs> bound. I remember. I, I remember. I had. Uh, I think it was for Comanche. It was a spiral bound book, and it, you there had. You go. You, yeah. You, but just to turn it on, you were 20 pages in before it says, "Okay, now the rotor should start turning." It's like, wow. I forgot what game it was, but you had to take a college course to start playing it. I'm kidding. Anyway, um, bad joke. Uh, Gunship. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, I don't know. Are you guys ready to move on to 16-bit? You ready to go console with it again? Sure. Okay. Oh, the only other one I remember, also a R- Roberta Williams game, was anybody buy the original Phantasmagoria? That's yeah, a I remember it. I remember all the hype around it. Right, because it was Roberta Williams doing a sexy PC thriller, live actors, boobs, butts, the whole nine yards. It didn't really have any of those things, but it was seven CDs, and they had to like individually package them in this long. Remember when this used to be acceptable? It was this long string of like. You know, kind of, kind of like you see nowadays, where they do like CD books or DVD books when you've got a multi-disc collection, but it would just stretch out accordion style. So it would, you'd have to walk across the room to extend all of the CD cases, you know, and then they'd all fold into themselves in a nice little box. I do remember that as well, and all the Phantasmagoria discs had like bright numbers on them, and they were all kind of individualized. Um, and I think uh, Porkchop was talking about how Splinter Cell did that too. Uh, it had three, four DVDs or something. But, uh, yeah, it's PCs always had the upper hand on, on, on packaging and, and freebies and things like that. And I still think they do to a certain extent. It's just gone all digital, digital, but, uh, but yeah. Um, but if we're going to go into, um, into, uh, the 16 bit, uh, I think the, the first and foremost, the, the, probably the most, uh, you know, complex box package, was the Earthbound box? So, um, anybody uh, remember the Earthbound box? Anybody seen one of these? No. Really, Derek? Have you seen this? Uh, I'm gonna. That's an RPG. By this point, I had I had uh, realized I hated RPGs. Okay. 
so you came into it early. That's smart. Uh, <laughs> because uh, Earthbound um, came in a, a, a huge box. It was only 60 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever the, the standard was for an, a Super Nintendo game, which is impressive because it needed a larger chip and, and things like that. But they, they kind of knew it was going to be a tough sell in America. Earthbound 1, uh, Mother, Earthbound 0, whatever it was going to be called, uh, was already canceled in, on the NES. No, sorry. Mother was on the NES. It was canceled. But Nintendo fully translated it. Did it use the FX chip? Uh, I do not believe Earthbound uses the FX chip. Okay. But it uses extra RAM chips because it's a huge game. Uh, And the translation was huge. Um, But it came with scratch and sniff stickers, one of which smelled like shit. Um, I think it was supposed to smell like fart. So it's very similar to those Ren and Stimpy scratch and sniffs that came with the comic book, if you guys remember that. I think uh, I think you mentioning it just turned my stomach. I remember okay, that well, Ren and Stimpy thing. Yes. Be, those that did uh, remember it. Like, it, it smelled like fart. Like, I don't know what else to call it. But uh, but it came with that. It came with a full, uh, full-blown, like, nowadays I think it would be the Brady games, like, uh, strategy guide. Mm-hmm. You could you could complete the game with that strategy guide, plus the game for sixty bucks, and it sold terribly still, which is why that combined package that took up so much shelf space is is worth like like a thousand bucks today or something. But uh, but Earthbound was definitely the king of pack-ins, and they took a large leap. And Nintendo was really hoping that we would pick on to it as an audience, and we didn't. Which is why whenever anybody gets really mad at Nintendo's hesitation, it's like, well, they put a lot of money and, and backing behind it. And I know a lot's changed. But I really was, I, I really, to this day, I'm kind of cynical about EarthBound. Although I heard the Wii U Virtual Console version sold a ton. And I think that's without Derek or Chip buying it. So that, that helps. It's going to save the Wii U. It's going to save the Wii U. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's what everybody's been wanting. That my Wii U, I can that I just paid three hundred fifty dollars for, uh, which is the epitome of Nintendo technology. I can go play a game that came out in nineteen ninety two. Yes, yes, you can. Yes, Derek. But you know what? The bigger deal, and I, I do kind of give a little credit to this. And again, I know it's off topic, but Derek, this is I will stand by this a big deal. The cheapest I have ever seen an Earthbound cart for real with somebody who actually has something in hand that'll sell it on Amazon or eBay, where you have some sort of contractual backing the cheapest i've seen for a label free meaning the motherfucker peeled the label off the game and they wouldn't guarantee that the battery backup still worked copy of earthbound was like 200 bucks and like a a complete inbox is 500 if you have the full strategy guide and everything is like a thousand like earthbound is a ridiculously expensive cart to the point where i say if you really wanted to play earthbound and you don't want to use emulation a Wii U is almost cheaper than buying a cart, <laughs> which is astounding. And it has not changed one bit since the game came out digitally. So Earthbound fans are, are huge, and it obviously is a testament to the very small amount of sales that game got. So it was, I'll give them credit. What I remember about Earthbound was a very nondescript, ugly box. To an extent. And, you know, we, we've talked about boxes and whatnot. Yes. We haven't talked about the box art, which in most, yeah. a lot of cases, probably killed a bunch of games. 
I mean, think of the Mega early Man. Mega Man box. <laughs> yes. there, were, there were no demos back then. A lot of games were sold off. And and the way they were set up in Toys R Us, you couldn't flip over to see the back of the box a lot of times. No. That front picture sold a lot of games. Oh, and I yeah. think it scared a lot of people away. From, I mean, if it was bad art, and I'm thinking Mega Man uh, right off the top of the the bat. Well, and guys, here's the Earthbound, like, unboxed. It doesn't really speak to the scope, but just so you guys know, that's about four times the size of a regular Super Nintendo box, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I would not buy that game based on that box art. Right, because the Starman is the big front cover, and it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I remember seeing that box and thinking, well, that looks stupid. Well, I was just kind of worried because I didn't want an S&M simulator, which is the weird, you know, place my mind goes first. But, yeah, like... Uh, like how, artist- how are you pulling S&M out of this picture? That guy looks like a leather-bound... Really? You don't see this? Barbs? He's the different from, from Pulp Fiction. Thank you. Yeah, before it ever existed. All right, I'll give it to you. Our genetic memory I'm trying to zoom in on it now. <laughs> now, I didn't think that when I was 10 years old, but I did think it was intimidating, intimidating, and I did not want to be a part of it. <laughs> but it's not Honestly, even like, I just thought it like, looks like an album cover. Like when you see an abstract album cover, like, oh, I don't know what, I don't know what Pink Floyd's, uh, Dark Side of the Moon is, but this looks like it may be good to listen to. Like that sort of artistic, weird looking thing. This is just, Bad. I never, I never realized that was a leather-bound dude with the. I never even realized it was a dude. And see, it ends up being an alien. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty effed up. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I I saw it as kind of like some type of star type thing, and I never realized that was a dude. But I mean, he, here's an example of bad box art. You, you look at this. It it's doesn't like, sell anything. It do, it doesn't sell. No, it doesn't sell the game. And you know, I mean, you think of some of the great boxes of the the NES and SNES and Genesis era, Castle of Illusion. Um, oh yeah. I think I think the Genesis Fantasy Stars because yeah, you know, Derek, you're talking about how Sega you had that all white box with some comic booky picture on front uh, the box art didn't sell the games either there i don't think i mean yes it was all white it was all uniform but um they didn't let their artists be very creative fair yeah, I, think, I think i think the box art while it attracted me because i was a techie little nerd kid i think mm-hmm. a lot of other kids looked at it and said that doesn't look like fun to me like, look at all look at all the colors on the other wall right I in my life well, and, like, um, look at, like, in the chat, I just put the Contra 3 box art. Like, that sold games. Like, look at that. You want to mm-hmm. be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, can we end the show? <laughs> yeah, but we're not gonna. I'm going to stretch this bitch right up to VGO. Um, but, yeah, like, Contra or Castlevania was a great example. Yes. Yeah. Didn't most Castlevania box art make you want to play the Castlevania game? Yes. Eric? Yes. Uh, Chip, I know you agree yeah. with me, but, but right. yeah, Castlevania box art always sold me on the game. Even Simon's Quest, which was terrible game. Um, the box art sold me. I was like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Villagers lying to me. Yeah. You know, and I, I can still be sucked in by a good, uh, some good box art. 
This yeah, Chip bought the Wii U. The type of box, <laughs> kind of like a sci, like like an old sci-fi pulp novel where you get to a part in the game and you can go back to the box and say, "Oh, I'm at this guy," or "Yeah, oh, this yeah. is where I'm at now." That's all. this. I'm fighting this guy right here now. Like that's kind of awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and while we're at it, I I feel the need, especially since I'm now mentioning Contra, uh, to to point out the original box art. Which uh, gets the credit for being the greatest combination of ripoffs one has ever seen. Um, I mean, you've got Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Aliens. Like, why wouldn't you ever want this game? Yeah. This is Stallone st- straight out of... I don't what, know. I think that's more Rando? Chuck Norris than uh, Schwarzenegger. Okay. No, no. This is Schwarzenegger. He's got the Dutch outfit from uh, Predator. That is clearly Dutch yeah. from Predator, in my opinion. But but they're they're borrowing from various uh, venues. They're they're not really specific on how they want to handle it. <laughs> it also explains uh, people's unknown uh, or our unknown love for licensed games, despite the fact that we know it's like a bear trap. But <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm... Contra is supposed to be based in the in the in South America. Uh, yes. Hence the term Contra. Well, I don't know about that. That's why Central I, America, I, maybe. Nicaragua. Yeah, Nicaragua. Well, that's where the Contras are from. Yeah, Central yes. America. I always thought it was based in Central America. Being Costa Rican, I know they wander into my country a lot. And uh... Hey, I used to drive a Contra army jeep for in, in uh, college. I had a, I had a Suzuki Samurai, which had a sticker right across the dash in Spanish, saying "Not to be sold on in the mainland United States." Oh well, there you go. <laughs> and apparently, it was the same vehicle they were using down in Nicaragua. The Contras were using in Nicaragua for <laughs> transport. Well, except when you lived in Europe, uh, Derek. If you lived in Europe. It was actually called Grizor or Probotector, and they were cyborgs. At which point, I think you're in Russia, right, in the late 80s with all those cyborgs, right? I don't know. But anyway. Um, but, yeah, I, I, like Chip said, box art sold a lot of things. Although, <laughs> under that logic, mm-hmm. um, I'm kind of curious as to how this sold games. Hold on. Here, I'm throwing it in the chat right now, but they're delayed, so I probably should have given it to you guys first. So if if that logic holds true, how the fuck did this get so many sales? Oh, I can explain that. Easy. Because I'd seen Labyrinth before. I didn't need to play it in video game form. Furries are sexy. What can, what can I say? <laughs> We're talking about Star Fox. I, uh, this is when Nintendo honestly. could do no wrong at this point. The Super NES yeah, is basically... We, 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 everybody decided that's the dominant system. And, it, and if you see it, if Nintendo made it, you buy it, basically. And good point. That's, that's the way I feel at this, like when Star Fox came out, uh, near the end of the Super, uh, Super NES's run, everybody, like, if a game came out, you bought it. Period. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it was Star Fox. I mean, it was hyped up. It had the Super You know, in it. it and, you know, if uh, Miyamoto shits in a box, you buy it. <laughs> this is F-Zero. You yes, I know, Chip. Science. We've already talked about you buying the Wii U. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And I, I use it as my I, I personal pinata. I, I, I love the Wii U. It's it's a great console. It's gonna show us someday. Ha-ha. Yeah, someday. <laughs> um, I, I wait for my rant this week. Anyways, um, <laughs> I got issues, but because um, I could you could you could you could say that this is basically uh, looking at this, and if you put this beside Trevor Trevor McFur. You would buy Trevor McFur first, but you would be wrong based on box art. I'll give you that. Yeah. You know what? I will give you that. This is what the Star Fox box shows. And I don't remember the the actual release date. Was it a holiday game? But, I mean, this is something that you could have your mother or grandmother buy you. It looks fairly innocuous with, uh, you know, an animatronic Disney-style Fox on the cover. You got your Star Wars motif going on 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 the right there, and mm-hmm. it's called Star Fox with, and it has the Super FX trip chip in it. So, uh, by the way, it was March '93, but I would bet that sold a lot better holiday season '93. Well, I would bet that's where a brunt yeah. of your sales come from. But I mean, I so. mean, it is a very <clears throat> family friendly box. Versus Contra. <laughs> yeah. Just in case uh, you miss it, they they stick on all the all the buzzwords they can uh, on the side of it. <laughs> yes. Revolutionary Super FX Microchip yeah. creates effect, special effects like never before. Well, so are you guys ready to take a step back? Sure. Let's talk about some big carts. I'm talking some massive carts. Neo Geo. I'm talking some AES carts. Yeah. Neo Geo. You got it. I'm talking your Betamax carts. Uh, kept very safe. I, in fact, you guys tell me, uh, especially you, Derek, because I know you and me are probably the only two who buy AES carts in the room. But those those guys are another group of, of, of games that almost solely have you know, the box. The instructions are a little harder to find, but the box, that, that plastic casing, that VHS Betamax plastic casing, is is in almost all of them. Now, when you're talking I, AES, I, are you talking Neo Geo? Because I had sorry, one as yes. well. Yeah. I should point out, the AES, the Advanced Entertainment System, that's the Neo Geo home console versus yep. the MVS, which was the arcade. Okay. Right. Yes, because I had the Neo Geo Gold. Right, but you probably bought most of yours new, right? Have you ever bought any used? Um, actually, the store, I, and I only owned two or three of the cartridges. Um, I think I usually Which bought Which was like the, 500 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think I bought them used from the store that I got them at because he, he was renting them to people. Gotcha. Um, but I just remember those huge plastic cases mm-hmm. that, again, protected oh. carts that... For some reason, they're heavier. They say, they seem For stronger. Reason, they were filled with goodness. That's why they were heavier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, they were I the felt arcade like board. there was a mini PCB board like in there. Yeah. For the most part, they were. There was. There were very slight technical differences, and they were at the end of the day the same ROMs. Um, but uh, but yeah, I do remember those. I remember those looking awesome. They were weighty. They felt durable. You had this box that that seemed very you know strong but again today most of the aes carts i find 
are not cart only. They have at least their case with them. Um, not so much to say for what looked goofy at the time, but would become a massive trend. Anybody own a TurboGrafx-16 at launch? I have a TurboGrafx. Keith Courage and Alpha Zones. Hells yeah. I still have my original launch 199. Well, launch is a bad word. Um, my original bought at Toys R Us on clearance 1992 edition of Keith Courage and Alpha Zone. Um, yeah, I was... That came out while I was my senior year of college, and I went Genesis over Turbo Graphics. Okay, so I uh, I think I did both because the TG sixteen was only fifteen fifty bucks when they really started clearancing them out okay. in ninety two ninety three at Toys R Us. All right, because ninety was when it came out, and it right. was either the same price or slightly more than with the. Than the Genesis TG sixteen launched for two hundred bucks in eighty nine or in it, well eighty nine ninety well it was it came out in eighty nine but it, it showed up in stores in ninety Toys R Us picked it up in ninety so it was sitting there for two hundred bucks whereas I think for one eighty nine you'd get the original Genesis with Golden Axe and no Altered, Altered Beast with Altered Beast okay they they advertised Golden Axe you got Altered Beast that's right and uh, and that was one eighty nine ninety nine and I hear that. I mean, especially when you compare them, that that ten bucks was enticing enough. Plus, let's face it, the Genesis looked a lot better. Um, yeah, and well, I swear it was out at the at the same time as, and I was in the store looking at both. Um, I mean, if you were in a Toys R Us, they did basically come out the same time. The Genesis snuck out in limited markets in '89. Yeah. Um, but it was not – I don't even think any of the TV campaigns were there. It was just something to be there. It was like the new tech that they decided to launch in, you know, Babbage's and uh, and then uh, and then Toys R Us. I think KB Toys picked it up in 90. So, I mean, it's it's in random places, okay. but yeah. The anyway. The graphics ad was, one, I believe those uh, credit card – those credit card games yep. didn't help me uh, when people nope. – we're comparing it. I know. I know it has nothing to do with it, but once again, you you send a parent in there and say, "Here's a game, and here's a game, and one is a cartridge, and one is a credit card." Eh. And plus, kids kind of knew that something was up with the with the TurboGrafx-16. Like, yeah, and and Hudson made the big mistake of releasing only pretty much their own games. There was a handful of non-Hudson games, but for the most part, it was Hudson games and. Uh, and Derek, I don't know if you remember, but the TG16, they came in like CD cases. So put a CD case in your hand and then put the old weighty Genesis Altered Beast or Mickey Mouse Castle of Illusion cart in your hand. And I think once you started seeing stuff like Mickey Mouse show up on there, I think Batman came out pretty early into the Genesis cycle. Um, those games were, they were just bigger selling points. I think the TG 16 eventually got Adam's family and it was a CD only game and it was shit. So like, yeah, it, it never really caught on, but I remember holding the turbo graphic 16 games and going, these will never catch on. These are like weird CD carts, you know, and think about nowadays or well, not nowadays, but think about like the PlayStation one era. Like they were all like that. Well, the, the Turbo Graphics did stick around. They, you got to give it to them. They tried with the yeah. NEC did not give up on that in America for a long time. And the the Turbo Express. I mean, they they yeah. pushed that thing 
uh, you cannot say that they didn't back their system. Like they backed it. <laughs> no, they needed to release more games out here, but they definitely kept it in stores. They kept it alive as long as they could. I think. They had, they had yeah, I mean, they, they they just kept reiterate, uh, you know, iterating and evolving the the so, the hardware, trying to find a way to make it palatable to the U.S. group. But Nintendo and then Sega, and especially when Sonic came out, I mean, there was there was just no room for mm-hmm. uh, on the sh- on the store shelves or in uh, people's homes for it. Nintendo had all the big names. Uh, mm-hmm. Sega had whatever was left. And then after that, I don't remember any name. Like, except for Adam's Sandler, like you said, which well, it even really wasn't a name as far as gaming is concerned. Turbo Graphics didn't have a name where you can say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go play Ease. Like, who? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Like, no. Yeah. No, Bart's yeah, Adventure was He's... the big, uh, Turbo Graphics game. Yeah, I remember there, they pimped Box on TV all the time. Yep. And, you know, a couple of years ago, and and it was at least two or three years ago, and we went to New York Comic Con, uh, what was it, not THQ, but Hudson, had a uh, XBL fully functioning uh, new Bonk game, which was co-op for Xbox Live. That was supposed to, I, I, we were there in October because Chris and Jeff were with, were with me. And they said, yeah, this should be out, uh, the beginning of, you know, the beginning of the year. And then, uh, then they went belly up. That game started life as a Wii game, actually. Hmm? Yeah. That game started life as a Wii game. They decided there wasn't, uh, enough money in, uh, doing the manufacturing and the, the marketing for it. So then they went to download only and they felt that it was a safer bet on Xbox Live. And then, yeah, they went tits up. But, uh, and and it was a spectacular co-op game with some great griefing elements, if I recall. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, but yeah yeah I remember that. And I the other thing I remember was uh, TG sixteen had some games that uh, if you were into the more colorful stuff, uh, video games as a kind of violent medium, and in the uh, in the advent of uh, Night Trap, uh, Mortal Kombat, all games like this, I wanted to own day one. Um, Splatterhouse was a great selling point because you played as mm-hmm. Jason Voorhees in a haunted house. Like, what's there not to love, right? Um, and I remember that game being uh, being a big part of, uh, of of my selling point to TurboGrafx-16. In fact, I think I bought the console purely so I could get my hands on that game and then kind of discovered some of the other things, like shmups. Like Air Zonk. Who would have thought Air Zonk, which I thought was like a, a Bonk's Adventure clone, was going to be a shmup? But it was, so... But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Okay, so, guys, we've got nine minutes. Do we want to delve into anything uh, deeper, such as uh, CD Media and uh, the Jag? Do you want to wrap up with CD Media and the Jag? Uh, Jaguar had uh, crappy CD Media, I believe, there. Well, I'm not actually talking about CD oh. Media for the Jag. I was talking about the inserts, how they brought them back. I don't know 10, why they did that. 15 I, years I, later. I remember having I – have, I have a Jaguar. I, I think my Jaguar is awesome. Don't know why there's these little pieces of plastic I'm supposed to put over a controller. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And they even had – like the controller itself already has like 27 buttons – and at yes. the end of its run, they came out with another controller to add it three more buttons for no reason. Are you kidding me? No, it came, they they came out with a Jaguar fighting controller because everybody had six buttons because of Street Fighter. 
So, and they only had three at the top, but it had 24 at the bottom. So instead of just moving some of the number pad ones up or repurposing them and just shaving, no, they added three more buttons. It, it was, it was That's insane. And on top of that, crazy. Uh, Doom had like a little, why do you need one for Doom? Switch weapons. Like, what do you need that for? Oh, yeah. They had one button. I, well, because uh, Derek, actually, when I started getting into the Jaguar, which was right after our Do the Math episode, our Atari, Love for Atari episode, which, if you guys don't know, Derek's kind of a fan of that uh, that company. Um, Started it all, people. Respect. Yeah. Respect. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I got into the Jaguar, Derek, and every single one of my copies of a Jaguar game now, including Aliens vs. Predators, which if you kn- if you don't know how expensive the cost of that game is when you have to buy one with all three intact inserts, it gets ridiculous. That's why I started buying boxed copies, because why not? It was like five bucks more. Um, yeah, the, the, the Doom one, every single button relates to a weapon. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, I messed with. I, the, I remember messing around with them in the Nobody Beats the Wiz department stores. I don't know if you guys remember, <laughs> remember those. those. Yeah. Um, but well, some don't need it. Like white men can't jump. Didn't need an overlay. Um, they need a game. <laughs> cheers. Uh, I'm really upset that I got that game. I'm not as upset as at Kasumi Kasumi Ninja. I might be crazy. Uh, Derek, but I actually kind of dig that game in a really terrible way. Like, assume, like I like uh, it the way I like Way of the Warrior. Though they they had some good games. Uh, White Man Can't Jump. Uh, it 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 was just a bad, bad, bad game, especially yeah, for something that, that could have been. It was easy as a basketball game. Just, I don't know how you yeah. mess up a, a simple basketball game. And there was no Woody Harrelson or uh, Wesley Snipes in there, which really. Upset me too. Did have profanity. I believe it was one of the first games ever. He did have, it did swear. Yeah, it was like street ball, right? It was like a precursor to street ball almost. Yes. Um, but uh, oddly enough, not as good as street sports basketball that came out on the Atari uh, on the Commodore sixty four eight years earlier. Oh wow! <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you're gonna be a Jaguar collector. I don't think you need the inserts, especially because there are plenty of databases that will just show you what they mean. But uh, that's what I've chosen to do with my 10 games or whatever. Although I don't really think Tempest 2000 even deserves to have one. Uh, it's it, The insert adds nothing to the game. I think it just is a little picture. But um, it's like Cybermorph. It's it's not necessary. But, uh, but yeah, all in all... Um, that was kind of crazy. And then do you remember the age of the long boxes? I'm talking your Sega CDs. 3DO. Sadly, your Saturns, your 3DOs, your CDI. Although I think CDI, for the most part, tried to go regular CDK style. Yeah. Well, do you remember the long boxes? Well, I, PlayStation 1 for a long time? A couple years? Yeah, because yeah. They, need, they needed that. They wanted them. For, that they, those were because they... Based on the way they were put in stores, so they would stick up or something, so they wouldn't get lost in the, so you could flip. I don't know why. Wait a minute. I don't know why they did that now. Doesn't make any sense. Hold on. I remember Sega CD being in pretty much Amray boxes, more or less. They were Define big. Define Amray. Uh, rect, long, rectangular. Yeah. The, the, sorry. These are what I'm talking about when I say long boxes. I'm sorry. Um, not the CD case. You're talking, yeah, the long boxes. You know, um, like Dream. Well, no, Dreamcast was small boxes. Yeah, like slide uh, out. But um, Saturn was long. Slide boxes. out the top or something. When I, when I say Amray, I mean 
similar to today's boxes, but thicker, definitely, and but and clear, if I recall. Um, the they s- were plastic and clear for the most part. 3DO actually held the uh, old school DVD format, where it was like cardboard surrounding a plastic shell. Yeah. But. Yeah. Uh, but they they went back and forth, and Sega CD borrowed that for a while. Actually, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever bought any of these games or had a box copy, but I have a box copy of um, uh, Corpse Killer, the original Sega CD version, not the 32X, and I think they also did a version of this on Double Switch and a couple others where it was actually all cardboard. It was all hard cardboard, and they had kind of like a felt insert. And I thought those were kind of cool. Kind of felt like a plastic version of a nice briefcase or something. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, the the plastic with the paper kind of see through stuff is what uh, what predominantly I'm thinking of uh, Chip, which was almost all of the Sega CD games, and I think 100% of the Saturn games in America. They actually use traditional CD format in Japan. Okay, but. Uh, yeah, and I remember those because they cracked easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they had to do a lot of stuff to keep the disc from spinning around in them. Who would have thought that the original Sega CD formats, if you ever bought launch Sega CD stuff, Night Trap came in like a like a cardboard sleeve that you would expect of like a free disc nowadays. Um, so did Sherlock Holmes as the pack-in and the Sega 5-in-1 pack. And I remember those are probably the better way to do it, although they don't look too pleasing on a shelf. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, video game packaging has come a long way. And, actually, I want to close with this. That was Sega CD's copy of um, Working Design's um, Lunar. Oh, that was a gorgeous There were a couple of others. But, yeah, that was when you knew that Working Design's was a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. Wonderful translations. Beautiful scenes. Really withheld the Japanese art. And, yeah, like Chip's saying, the discs had gorgeous art on it. This all continued through to the PlayStation. And if you get any Working Designs games on the TurboGrafx-16, it's definitely true. And uh, the art books were great. Full color. Gave you intros the whole nine yards. It was impressive as hell. So. Yeah, it was. Uh, and not only that, uh, the collector, uh, the collector's items in Japan are legendary. But... Um, they even did a decent job here. Working Designs was always great at providing uh, value-added items to the to the to the games themselves. I mean, beautiful books, artwork, covers, um, maps. If I recall, yep. Um, they they were uh, when it came to J- JRPGs, they were. Because what basically they were an American company that translated JRPGs. If I if I'm yeah, Victor Ireland, yeah. who was obsessed with uh, Japan, um, has and continues to with. Uh, doesn't he do Monkey Paw? I know he does Gaijin games. I mean, to this day, he's the reason there are random Japanese games along with some other companies uh, on um, on the PSN, and he is definitely responsible for a lot of your translations that never should have come over yeah. here. So, but all right, well, just to give VGO some time to prep and to give them some space, I think we're going to, we're going to back off, but this was a great discussion, guys. I thank you both for joining me. Um, 
Chip, anything you want to pimp other than obviously our wonderful show, the B Team, Thursday nights at uh, at uh, nine PM Eastern. Sure, go check go check out that and go go to our website, the B Team Podcast, and be sure to go to the All Games uh, the allgames dot com and click on the All Games Awards. And please vote for both mine and Fred's shows, uh, the B Team Podcast and. Uh, Gaming History 101, we are up for multiple multiple awards in various categories. And please vote early and often. Derek? I will uh, plug allgames.com itself. It's a great site. Uh, new stuff's being added. Uh, a bunch of new shows. Well, I don't say a bunch of new shows, but new shows are, have uh, joined the lineup. Uh, new things you can do on the site. You, got, you, also, you can have a photo gallery. Uh, now with your with your uh, profile, uh, there's forums over there. Of course, the awesome chat room, uh, the arch- archives for every show on the network is uh, on the site. So anytime you want to listen to anything, just go to allgames.com, click shows, and find your favorite show, and then you can just listen listen to your your little heart's content. Uh, you know what I think we should do, Derek? Yes. We've had uh, easy mode unlocked. <laughs> we had easy mode unlocked uh, uh, for our forums, but unfortunately, a lot of people aren't uh, aren't heading that way. And I don't mind expanding the market. I think I'm going to start a gaming history 101 area over in the forums here, and uh, we can talk all things retro. I think it would be really good for for our community to uh, take advantage of what we've got here at uh, All Games. You you warm my heart, Fred. Yes. <laughs> Hey, man, I just like the fact that I'm like, hey, Derek, I was thinking about doing this. Do we have this? And you're like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's that then. <laughs> so, but, uh, well, well, thank you guys both for being on. Again, if you want to find our show, we are live here at the wonderful allgames.com every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. in our wonderful new time slot just before VGO. And uh, you can find us here for the live chat and things like that. Otherwise, go to gaminghistory101.com. Click on the podcast link for all of our podcast stuff, but there's a lot of content out there. Feel free to check it, and you are always welcome to hit contact to send in things for the show, show requests, and obviously to uh, request something you want written. If you want me to cover something, sure, why not? I can do video. I can do anything you want, so uh, so check it out. And in honor of um, of Iron Maiden coming to town recently, and I unfortunately missed it. I think we're going to go out with um, one of my favorite Maiden songs. But before we do any of that, I do want to say um, thank you, All Games. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Chatters. Thank you, TC. And thank you for everybody um, who, who came out tonight. Definitely come and join us in the future because we will, we will keep this content going. So. Thank Guys, if you wouldn't mind, um, thank unless you had something else. Or thank you for all you do. Yeah. Hey, I'm here. You gave me a home. I am taking full advantage of it because I like what you offer. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, thank you very much, guys. Um, until next week, keep gaming. <laughs>